Uh, so if you have not been with us in the last few weeks, we are slowly working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We've been in Luke since September. We're all the way to the beginning of chapter 2. Boom. But uh, we kind of did that on purpose, sort of stalling, so that we could get to the birth narrative and uh, the story of the birth of Jesus in chapter 2 right around this time of year, and we did it. This morning, we're actually going to look at the same verses we looked at last week again, verses uh, 1 through 7 of chapter 2. Last week, we talked about Joseph and Joseph's willingness to allow God to speak into his life and then to allow his life to be interrupted by God speaking into it. And, um, you know, I was thinking about that this week a little bit, just in the aftermath, kind of the whole idea of God speaking to us. And uh, it's, it's interesting to me, over the years, the number of people that have said this to me, almost verbatim, same phrase, well, God doesn't speak to me. And it's interesting because what they're saying is, I don't have a theological disposition that tells me that God doesn't speak. I believe God does speak. He just doesn't speak to me. And one of the things we pointed out about Joseph, we always look at the people in the Bible as like, well, hey, they're the people in the Bible. But my point last week was, who was Joseph before he was the guy in the Bible? He was a carpenter. God will speak to a carpenter. God will speak to anybody. And, and I just want to encourage you, whoever you are, wherever you are, that, that God speaks, and God is speaking to us, I, I, I believe all of us, much more than we recognize or acknowledge. And as we learn to listen, as we tune our ears, as we tune our hearts really into hearing the voice of God, allow yourself to, to uh, sometimes it's just taking time. You know what I mean? Gosh dang it, we get so busy. Anybody ever get too busy? No? I'm wrong crowd. Um, just take some time. And, and again, you know, Advent, Christmas season, uh, you know, if you have an opportunity, just take a few minutes and, and uh, just be quiet somewhere and let God speak to you. Uh, Joseph uh, let God speak, and it, it changed the direction of his life. And that's the other issue. If God does speak, do we want to hear what he has to say? Uh, today we're going to look at, the, again, those same verses, uh, but we're going to look at the other person in this passage, uh, Caesar Augustus. Our title this morning, if you want to go ahead to that, is... Power over, power under. Uh, Let's pray, and we'll read uh, the verses together, and we'll talk a little bit about Caesar. Lord, we're so, so, so grateful that you are a God who speaks and interacts with his people. We're so grateful that you're a God who's present, a God who's with us. Thankful that you're here with us this morning, that you're here with us when we gather. You're here with us when we separate, we go our own ways. And that we have uh, backstage pass. We have full access to you, 24-7. We can come to you anytime. You're always there. You're always waiting. You're never too busy for us. So open our hearts and open your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Verses 1 through 3. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Uh, We mentioned last week the uh, Roman Empire had spread. It was pretty vast, pretty wide. Uh, This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their town to register. So Caesar Augustus was, uh, by all accounts, the most powerful man in the world at the time of this writing. 
Uh, many historians would say that Caesar was the most powerful man in the world ever in history up to this point, even more so than Alexander the Great or any other of the previous rulers of Rome. Reason being, in 27 B.C., uh, about 20 years prior to this, and I, I think I mentioned this before, Jesus was actually born in about 6 or 7. Our calendars are off a little bit. I don't think we need to worry about that. It's just a little historical fact. But uh, 27 B.C., Augustus consolidated. Rome was previously a republic, and it was ruled by a group of people called the Senate. And Augustus consolidated the power of the Senate under him and changed the government from a republic to an empire. And so he then had uh, sole rulership over the entire Roman Empire. And as we said, it had grown, and so he calls for a census. Uh, by the way, you know, just it was the shift at this point in time to a empire was by many accounts good for Rome in the sense that there was some civil strife and infighting and kind of, you know, I know none of you have ever been in a country that was divided or politically separated or anything like that, but if you ever were, that's what it was like. But Caesar kind of consolidated that into sort of a one-party deal, uh, and people were generally happy with it. He was very uh, popular as Caesars go, very well-liked, um, you know, and again, probably a, a what we would call a benevolent dictator today. He, was a, he ruled, but ruled fairly graciously. Uh, so he rules over the entire Roman Empire, and Luke, in his writing, wants us to know that. He's, he's telling us this for a reason. He wants his friend Theophilus and anybody else that reads this letter to know that Caesar was a powerful person. So Caesar issues this decree that the census would be taken. The census fulfills two purposes. First of all, it was uh, registration for military service. So one of the reasons that the Roman Empire was so powerful is because they had a powerful army, right? And he wanted to ensure that that would continue. He didn't want anybody hiding out on him. So you would, you would by taking the census, are essentially signing yourself up for the draft that you're registering for the draft at the same time, so the army could continue to be built. The second purpose of the census was, of course, for taxation. Another reason that the empire was so powerful was uh, they had a lot of money, and Caesar also wanted to ensure that that remained true, and so people were required to travel from where they were to their hometown to register so that they would be signed up for the military and to pay their taxes. Go ahead, next verse. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Uh, Joseph uh, was a descendant of David, and although uh, it had been prophetically declared that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. Joseph was not, of course, Jesus' biological father. We know that, but he was his uh, legal father, and therefore, this prophecy that the Messiah would come from the line of David was fulfilled through Joseph. Prophecy also said that the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem. As we said last week, Joseph and Mary traveled some 90 miles 
from Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill Caesar's decree. Go ahead to uh, the next slide. But you, but this is the prophet Micah, you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So 750 years before the birth of Jesus, a prophet Micah said that even though Bethlehem is a small, insignificant place in God's kingdom, that uh, the ruler of Israel would come from Bethlehem. He also says something else here that I think is important for us, not only in context of today, but just in general, and that is that his origins are from ancient times. The activity of Jesus predates his birth. From the beginning of time, from creation itself, God, in Trinity, was working behind the scenes, moving and preparing his plan. This was the plan from the beginning. I think sometimes we think it didn't work out. And so God had to go to plan B. But let me just say, this was the plan from the very beginning. Go to the next verse. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in the manger because there was no guest room available for them. Uh, The the manger manger is is literally a feeding trough. And so all of our little, uh, you know, the images we have, the little nativity scenes you have in your house or whatever, they're pretty accurate. So that little wooden structure thing, it's the little trough that they would put the food in for the animals so it wasn't in the ground. And it was about the right size for a crib. So that's where Mary and Joseph put Jesus. They're in the barn, and that's where they laid him down. The census was happening. People were traveling. It was a bit chaotic, a little bit confusing. The inn was full. There was no room. This is not um, prejudicial or or discriminatory in any way, really. It's just circumstantial. I mean, it's just the way it was. It was full. Uh, People were coming in from out of town. Bethlehem's a small place. And there wasn't room, and they ended up in the barn, and Jesus was laid in the manger. So there you go. That's the history. That's sort of what the world picture looked like at the time Jesus was born. What does uh, all this mean to us? First of all, it's this. It's, it's, this is the introduction or the advent, if you will, the beginning of the upside-down kingdom of God. When you, when you look at this from a historical perspective, Caesar was in charge. Caesar was building his army, he was collecting taxes, he was expanding his empire. And that's the way the world works. You exercise the power you have to gain more power and continue to further your empire. Caesar issues a decree, everyone jumps. No matter how much of an inconvenience it is, you don't have the option. You put aside your job, your family, whatever else it is that you need to do, even if you're pregnant, you leave and go to where you're supposed to go to be counted so that you can register for the army and you can pay your taxes and Caesar's empire can grow. But underneath all of that, in the midst of Caesar's decree and the Roman Empire being expanded, God fulfills a 750-year-old prophecy and launches His kingdom. And it's very, very subtle. It's very quiet. It's very uh, unceremonious. 
almost subversive. <coughs> he is what we would call under the radar. And that's how God works. The world works one way, God works another way. It's very different. The world works by exercising power over people. God works by exercising power under people. Um, kings and rulers are always issuing decrees. They're always making plans. They're always building empires. But in the midst of that, God is quietly at work changing lives and transforming the hearts of people and healing bodies. And we see that in our, in our midst all the time here. We see God quietly working. Uh, and, we, and sometimes we overlook those things. But God's at work all the time. And in the midst, and I would just encourage you today, in the midst of whatever might be happening in the world around us, God's at work. And while it looks like, you know, empires are in charge, God's at work. Quiet ways, little ways, here and there. The hearts of people. Go to Isaiah. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? No one. Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Again, no one. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scale. Don't even move the scale. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. It looks like the course of the world is determined by Caesar, by the rulers, the powers, the armies, and they may not recognize it or certainly don't acknowledge it, but the truth is that God is over it all. God is in the midst of it all. He's above it all. God is in control of everything that takes place all the time. Joseph, um, Joseph follows the decree. He did what Caesar said to do, and unbeknownst to Caesar, God was using him to fulfill this prophecy for this Messiah to be born and for his kingdom to be launched. The nations are a drop in the bucket. They're dust on the scale in the eyes of God. About uh, 65 years after this, Nero became Caesar. Nero was not as popular or well-liked. He was a very brutal dictator. Um, and he did not like Christians and sought to exterminate all the Christians in the world and started having them killed. And what do you suppose happened in the midst of that? Thousands and thousands of people converted to Christianity and the church exploded. Can I just say there will always be Caesars in the world. There will always be the Stalins and the Hitlers and the Amins and the Putins and the Kim Jong-uns or whoever they are. That's never going to change. That's not going to go away as long as we're in this world. And, and um, they, they can think they're in charge all they want, but underneath it all, God's hand is in the midst of everything. John 5. Jesus says, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And I think... Our task is to open our eyes and see the work of God, the hand of God moving in the midst of the chaos in the world around us. 
That's my encouragement to you. I want to give you, uh, and if you guys want to come back up now, you can. I've got a little bit of time, but, you know, just go. Three points of application real quick. First is, don't blame God for what the Caesars of the world do. Okay? Uh, It's a complex world. Spiritual warfare is a complex dynamic. We talk about it often here. But the reality is that the Caesars of the world have the same free will that you and I have. And oftentimes they are blinded by greed. They're blinded by power. And so they do things that are not uh, in line with the kingdom of God and in, in, in furthering and advancing God's kingdom. And it benefits, it's, it's, it's essential really for us to see that for what it is and to understand that the Caesars of the world really do make the decisions that they make. And even though God's hand is at work, He's not behind those decisions and we can't blame God. What I mean by that is this. I've had people say to me, why would God allow this to happen? And you can fill in the blank. And, and I want to say, that, first of all, that's a legit question, okay? Don't ever fault yourself for asking that question. That's a legit question. It's a tough question. But the answer is this. The answer is that God loves us enough to give us the opportunity to make a decision whether we follow Him or not. And some people are going to choose not. And so we have to recognize that for what it is. And we have to cling to the reality that the day will come when God's kingdom will be fully consummated in this world and we will live in a very different reality. But in this day and in this age, that reality remains. But don't blame God for what the Caesars of the world do. Second thing, and you can turn to the next slide, be still and know that I am God. Look, that is a cliche answer, but it's not. Take a step back. When you see what's happening in the world around you, and at times, it, and I don't know about you, it gets overwhelming to me. Take a step back. Take a deep breath and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to speak. That's one of those moments you need that quiet time. And you need to allow God to speak into your heart and into your life. And you need to be still and know that God is God in the midst of whatever might be going on around us. We quote the first part of that verse very often, but we don't typically quote the second part. I Go back, go back. Gosh! I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God will be lifted up even in the midst of what's going on. That never changes. The world is a mess, but know what? Here's the thing. I've told you this before. God's not worried. God's not overwhelmed. God's not scratching his head and going, Oh, my self. O-M-M. No. God's not concerned. He's okay. He's in control. He knows what's happening. Third thing, last verse our friend James, now you can change it. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. Seek God's wisdom. I, I just would encourage you in the midst of whatever's happening, whether it be big or small, you know, sometimes on a, on a global scale, we go, there's nothing I can do. Maybe there is. Just pray, Lord, is there, do I have a part in this? Maybe God puts somebody in your heart. You know, uh, just one example. You, you know, uh, we've worked in Nicaragua for many years, and I have dear, dear friends there, and their country's been upside down this year. And uh, so I, I pray for them. And, I, and I, I write emails to people and just say, I'm praying for you. And I, I can't do much more than that, but I can do that. I can bring a little bit of encouragement to people whose lives have been turned upside down. And so you pray, maybe can I do something in this situation? And then there are those little situations, those personal things, local things, day-to-day things, and maybe you can do something more. And just seek the wisdom of God. God, what's my part in this? And so with that, I think we really can um, look at how the world's power is exercised and how God's power is exercised, and we can walk in the grace and goodness of who He is. Amen?